He's a wild young whippersnapper and constantly getting into scrapes. The Outline World Dispatch. Thursday, June 8th, 2017. I'm Tolu Adilnwe. Today on The Dispatch. Why do Trump's videos look so bad? Donald Trump urgently needs your help today to defeat Hillary Clinton. William Turton looks at Uber's growing problems. And it's just adding to a lot of the troubles that Uber has been suffering from. And Roland Bishop looks ahead to James Comey's testimony. It's a very sensual letter in a sort of non-consensual way. Here's the dispatch. Culture. In April, Donald Trump tweeted a video to welcome Aya Hijazi, an Egyptian-American charity worker who'd recently been released from wrongful imprisonment in Egypt, back to the United States. From the lakes of Minnesota to the hills of The video opens smack in the middle of a line from the Lee Greenwood country anthem, God Bless the USA. We see a stock graphic of a rustling U.S. flag. Then there's a crossfade to a scrolling Washington Post article about the Trump administration's role in getting Hijazi free. A few seconds later, we see a poorly lit shot of the ceiling of the Oval Office. The camera tilts down to reveal a conversation between Trump, Hijazi, and others. The rest of the video consists of photos edited with the so-called Ken Burns effect, a freshman year film school tactic in which this camera zooms in or pans over a still photograph. At the end, we're treated to a block-lettered, low-resolution welcome sign, superimposed over yet another photo of Hijazi and Trump. This has become a pattern for Trump. Poorly edited digital content in which serious and significant subjects are given bad color treatments, blurry imagery, and carelessly incorrect accoutrements, like in a video featuring the former Taoiseach of Ireland, where instead of the shamrock, the ending frame of the video features a four-leaf clover, a symbol more typically associated with the Lucky Charms leprechaun. There's also the infamous trucker video. No one knows America like truckers know America. And a mini rally documentary from October 2016 in Arizona, in which the state flag is clumsily pinned to a corner of the screen throughout the video. The style of these videos and many others on Trump's Twitter feed are remarkably consistent. But is this awkward, lo-fi aesthetic purposeful? or another display of Trumpian incompetence. To some, these flaws may actually signal the scrappy authenticity that Trump has tried to embody. According to Paul Barry, founder and CEO of digital publishing platform Rebel Mouse and former CTO of the Huffington Post, Trump's unrefined media presence may be exactly what is appealing to his supporters. When you polish everything and make everything perfect, that that's what people don't want anymore. Barry doesn't believe the imperfections in the videos are purposeful, but they parallel the way Trump has tried to present his image. You do feel it's the real him. This is me. This is just who I am. This is like bad lighting and all. You know, it's like hashtag no filter is Trump. <laughs> Trump's old school visuals might be a throwback to a particular time. The resolution and the editing specifically, that's the video quality there. We're looking at something from a couple of decades ago. And that's when I think a lot of his base was probably more comfortable. That's Lauren McCarter, the resident user interface and user experience designer at New York Code and Design Academy. It probably feels familiar. It probably feels like it's something out of a time where they felt uh, the government was more aligned with their interests. 
I think that's what a lot of people like about the president now is that he doesn't seem like a highly produced person or he's presenting himself as not being a highly produced person. But, you know, I mean, he was a reality TV star, so he certainly has plenty of experience being highly produced. It's tempting to imagine that this is a carefully put together aesthetic, a deliberately grotesque pastiche of Reagan sentimental soundtracks and Bush's slow pan and zoom campaign ads constructed as a nod to the nostalgic yearnings of Trump's hashtag Make America Great Again base. We can see this in organizations politically adjacent to Trump as well. In February, Breitbart conducted an interview with White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer that instantly became fodder for memes due to its supremely awkward camera work and uncanny resemblance to public access television. Hi, my name is Charlie Spearing from Breitbart News. I'm the White House correspondent, and I'm sitting here with Sean Spicer for breaking news, uh, reaction to the breaking news about the court ruling on the... And last year, All In with Chris Hayes spotted a television ad sponsored by a pro-Trump pack that had graphics right out of an infomercial. Donald Trump urgently needs your help today to defeat Hillary Clinton. What seems most likely is that the 70-year-old president and his officials don't recognize the fact that their videos look outdated and amateurish. To Trump's communications crew, bad Photoshop and lazy iMovie montages are perfectly acceptable. Mediocrity, after all, doesn't matter when you have a bed of desperate, angry, nationalistic constituents upon which to rest your head. The future. It seems impossible, but the disaster at Uber is continuing to get worse. William Turton. Hey. What happened yesterday? So Recode had a pretty big scoop yesterday, um, and it's just adding to a lot of the troubles that Uber has been suffering from. They've kind of been embroiled in scandal for months now, and now we learn, coming from this Recode report, that there is an executive at Uber who carried around a medical file of a rape victim uh, who was an Uber passenger in India who was raped by her driver uh, and carried around this medical file insinuating that the rape didn't actually happen or was manufactured in some way and showed it to Uber's CEO, Travis Kalanick. So what happened? Did this guy get fired? So... Eric Alexander, the executive who carried around this medical file for a year, did get fired. But the timing of his firing is really interesting. Uber has been conducting an internal investigation now for a few months with two separate law firms. And a couple days ago, news leaked that Uber had fired 20 employees as part of their harassment investigation. But this executive wasn't one of them. Uh, He was only fired after Recode went to Uber asking for comment about the story. Okay, so he's only fired after Recode said something. Right. What about the other executives, the people he showed it to? Well, nothing has happened to them yet. And there are two pretty high-level executives that were named in the Recode story. We have the CEO, Travis Kalanick, um, and the senior vice president of business generally, uh, Emil Michael. Now... A reporter at the New York Times, Mike Isaac, had some pretty interesting tweets about the story. He's, you know, very well sourced on Uber. And he noted that all three of these guys were very close um, and that the person who was fired, Eric Alexander, was in charge of Uber's Asia Pacific operations, which is a key market for Uber, something that they're really trying to break into. Um, So, you know, it kind of makes you question 
why didn't this guy get fired before this? How did he even get the files in the first place? That's a great question. Apparently, he went down to New, De- New Delhi, India, where this event happened, and somehow acquired her medical file. Uh, it's not exactly clear, but um, an Uber executive said that as soon as he tried to show the file to CEO Travis Kalanick, that he should have been fired. Okay, so at this point, like, what comes next for Uber? You know, no one can really say at this point. It seemed, as you said, almost impossible for the situation at Uber to get worse, but somehow it did. Right now, Obama's attorney general, Eric Holder, is working to compile a report inside the company about what exactly is going on. Um, Really, the question will be if any more executives depart um, and if any more bombshells like this will come out of the company. All right. I guess we'll see. Thanks, William. Thanks for having me. Power. In advance of former FBI Director James Comey's testimony in front of a Senate Intelligence Committee later today, his prepared remarks have been released, and they are a doozy. Roland Bishop is here to talk about what's in those remarks and what comes next. Hi, Roland. Hi, Tiller. So what did Comey have to say? The prepared remarks are pretty straightforward. It's essentially a timeline of every meeting that he ever really had with Trump. Uh, And previously, we had learned that Comey took notes after every meeting. And this sort of uh, is the result of that, it looks like. So So what did he have to say about Trump? So... To be clear, these remarks are very straightforward. He never speculates on Trump's motives for things. It's very much just, I did this thing, Trump did this thing, these other people who were around did this, and here's how it made me feel, which is about what you should expect from these kind of written remarks. It'll really depend on what the committee ends up asking him after this. uh, That'll be very telling. But just reading between the lines here, it's a lot of, what looks like Trump trying to interfere um, with various stages of what, you know, we would collectively call the Russia investigation. Uh, One particular passage, uh, I'm just going to quote it here directly. Uh, A few moments later, the president said, I need loyalty. I expect loyalty. I didn't move, speak, or change my facial expression in any way during the awkward silence that followed. We simply looked at each other in silence. The conversation then moved on, but he returned to the subject near the end of our dinner. And then it goes on to describe <laughs> to describe him asking for loyalty again, uh, mm. at which point Comey says that he can offer honesty. And Trump's like, yeah, right, honest loyalty. That's what I'm asking for. <laughs> at which point Comey says, oh, yes, I, okay, that. And it's just, it, it, that writ large is pretty much uh, all of these seven pages, and they're all great. As I said previously, Comey doesn't ever speculate on motive, but mm-hmm. what he does offer his, is his own opinion on certain aspects of these conversations. And uh, as, as part of that meeting where I just quoted, which was a, a weird sort of intimate dinner on January 27th, um, Comey writes that uh, he, he felt that this was pretty inappropriate, uh, that he was there and Trump was trying to, despite the fact that Comey already had the job and had already been told he was going to keep the job, Trump was trying to, I guess, 
take on some form of patronage. Like, uh, I am responsible for giving you your job. I want you to ask for it. Uh, and it just, it comes across very, very weird. It's a very sensual, um, letter in a sort of non-consensual way. Uh, here's Comey directly from that meeting. My instincts told me that the one-on-one setting and the pretense that this was our first discussion about my position meant the dinner was, at least in part, an effort to have me ask for my job and create some sort of patronage relationship. That concerned me greatly, given the FBI's traditionally independent status in the executive branch. So what can we expect to hear later today that is not in Comey's written testimony? It's hard to say. Probably nothing earth-shattering. I think that the prepared remarks are very, very interesting on their own. I would expect that the committee will dissect certain things. They might go after motive, but I would find that unlikely. I think what they will do is try to dig into this, see if there's anything that Comey left out, or maybe any sort of intention that Comey didn't add here. Maybe Trump did something specifically, like what was he doing at this time? How did he react when you did this? Those are the sort of questions I would expect. Thanks, Rollin. Not a problem, Tola. That concludes The Dispatch. I'm Tolu Adionwe. Have a great weekend. More stories on Monday.